welcome to Define the Relationship podcast, a podcast where we explore the relationship we have with the Bible and ourselves. I'm one of your hosts, Darlene Enstick. And I'm the other host, Ted Enstick. And as you can tell from our names, we belong together. I just defined the relationship. All right. Well, welcome to Define the Relationship podcast. Uh, we're outside today. Yes, you will probably notice some birds chirping and the occasional train whistle. Train which... and is that a helicopter or a? No, I think that's uh, the construction project that's taking place just oh, okay. just north of us on Tenth Avenue. So we couldn't um, stomach being inside on such a beautiful day. So. Um, yeah, that's kind of fun. We're sitting in our little gazebo. It's quite pleasant. The back house, as Rob Bell would say. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's not pretend we're (laughs) Rob and Kristen Bell. With the caveat that (laughs) Rob and Kristen Bell can be in the back house 365 days a year because they live in California. Yeah, we hate them. So good. Anyway, (laughs) um... Here we are. We're in our eighth episode and seventh chapter. Yes. And uh, the seventh seventh chapter is called Imagining and Reimagining God. This chapter is just, it's chock full of, I have so many things underlined and marked in this chapter. So I'm... Is that a good thing or is I that... Think so, uh, yeah. Okay, good. It's... um. It's, well, I mean, one of the things I think that a lot of people struggle so much with is all the violence in the Bible and how often the words in scriptures kind of indicate that God willed all these people to die and, um, you know, that just that violent vengeance, God. And so Pete gets into some of that a little bit in this chapter, um, but the back the background around it is is kind of about how how um an ancient culture worked how you know the context of all of their gods and and so anyway we'll we'll get into that um we will what maybe I'll start with this question for you Ted since I'm in the in the question asking seat today what, like, what kind of um, struck you in this in this chapter? What kind of well, the impacted first, you the most? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is this very interesting Old Testament story that Pete begins the chapter with of King Misha mm-hmm. of the Moabites. And I'm quite sure I've never picked up on this story before. Um, so I found that super interesting. Um, do you want me to tell it? Yeah. Tell the story? Like of, just Cole's notes. Yeah. The, yeah. It's, uh, definitely <laughs> Cole's notes. So, um, the story of Misha, the king of Moab, uh, comes from second Kings chapter three. And basically the backstory of this happening is, uh, and of, and based on the footnotes that ends has in this chapter, um, there is some archaeological evidence outside of the Bible that seems to back up 
this telling of the story. So yeah. that's also quite interesting. This is doesn't seem to be something that was made up out of thin air as a like a parable or something. Like we talked about the Jonah story, which seems to be more of a parable, but it's actually something that really happened. And so basically, um, the northern there was this is the time in Israel when there were two kingdoms: the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the Moabs were threatening the northern kingdom, and um, the king of the northern kingdom, I don't have his name right now. Um, Jehoram. Okay, Jehoram. Um, basically went to defend the northern kingdom against Moab, ended up having King Misha being under siege in a city. And uh, I guess Misha was kind of desperate, so he decided that he would sacrifice his son, human sacrifice, um, as a way of gaining the favor of the gods that the Moabites were worshipping. Right. Sometimes they would sacrifice animals, but if you really wanted to gain favor, you sacrifice your kid, of course. I mean, that just makes so much sense. Yeah. I mean, however practical that might be, <laughs> seems quite excessive. And the upshot of this story is that and this is kind of a, a bit of a bit of a surprise is that th this is this is the scripture verse from 2 Kings 3 verse 27 and after Misha sacrificed his son we read and a great wrath came upon Israel so that the Israel so that the Israelite coalition withdrew from him Misha and returned to their own land so in other words the child sacrifice seems to work and not only that, the Bible records this perspective that a child sacrifice took place and the Israelites were beaten back. And it doesn't challenge the worldview of the God of the Moabites that was just sacrificed to. It, it's, it's really quite interesting because you'd expect there to be a bit of a different perspective coming from the Bible. And yet there it is. And so, um, so the story of Misha, the Moabites, and child sacrifice. Yeah, and, and because there isn't an explanation or a counter to that kind of thing, the point ends is making is that it made sense in that world. It's not like it would have have been something that came out of the blue. It made sense. Yeah. Right? So... To the author of Second Kings, this, like you say, this is not out of the realm of possibility or abnormal. This is kind of the way they understood things. And if we connect back to our last episode where we talked about um, how Enns pointed out that the, the Israelites were not a monotheistic religion in their earliest forms. They were actually a monolatrist religion, which is they recognize that there were many gods, but they were to worship Yahweh over against all the other gods. So um, just another glaring example of this very, very different perspective than we would guess would come from the Bible. Yeah. He uses the analogy of banks. Mm -hmm. About how, like... Um, you, like it's not an active question for us, you know, is there only 
you know, which is the only true bank? We're always like, well, where do you bank? What's, what's the kind of, um, yeah, where do you go? And, um, yeah, it's a very helpful analogy, actually, because it's something quite practical to our daily life. We are quite aware of different banks. We don't bank at all the banks. We make choices about which bank or credit union we're going to participate with. And, um, you know, it's it's just it just reinforces this very different understanding that the Bible brings about how God fits into the pantheon of other gods. Now, it should be said that as the biblical perspective evolves over hundreds and hundreds of years, that perspective becomes more and more monotheistic and less monolatrous. And there's more of an understanding that all the other gods are actually false gods or um, not authentically gods, but they're actually they've been made up or they're, they're, they're idols and, uh, that God, Yahweh, the God of Jesus is the only God. Yeah. And so he's also talking too about how the story of the Israelites, um, and leaving Egypt, uh, like the Exodus story about how the plagues, um, kind of connect to, specific gods like the first plague i think he talked about right is the blood going into the nile and the nile is like the nile is so significant to the egyptians and there's a there's a deity that's connected to the nile i can't yes. remember the name happy, yeah. uh, happy or something like that. um yeah oh happy yeah <laughs> H-A-P-I, the yeah. god Happy, who was the 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 god of the Nile. Basically which... about water. It's the god of water. Yeah. Yeah. And then the second plague is frogs all over the place, right? And they... the frog is is symbolic of a fertility god. Right, named Hecate or Hegate. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that. Yeah. So, so there's this story that is evolving of um, Yahweh you know, coming up against other very typical gods that, that, that people relied on. Yeah. Again, he used an analogy. He kind of talks about it as like an ultimate fighting championship type of battle between the God of the Israelites, who is Yahweh, and the God of the Egyptians and Pharaoh. And so you have the human Moses and the human Pharaoh squaring off and you have the God of the Israelites and the God of the Egyptians. And um, yeah, and he goes on, like he, he highlights the first plague, which is the, the blood of the Nile. The second is the frogs. And then he goes all the way to the ninth, which is when a darkness came a, across the land of Egypt. Yeah. And that specifically relates to a battle with Ra, the sun god, which was one of the significant, maybe one of the, the, the largest gods in, in the Egyptian um, religious understanding. And then finally, the ultimate plague, which is the death of every firstborn in Egypt. And of course, the Israelites had the the Passover pro, um, process that, that kind of shielded them from that plague. And um, that was a battle against Osiris, the god of death. And so the, the god Yahweh is uh, in control of all aspects of life that the Egyptian gods are supposed to be in control of. And so that when we come to Exodus 20 and we have the start of the Ten Commandments 
And the first one being, I am Yahweh, your God, um, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Mm-hmm. And so um, you kind of get get the weight, the weight of that a little bit differently when you start to see that, um, start to understand the just how powerful these other gods were and that this is where God is. This is kind of where God is leading the people to understand that there is there. I mean, it's absolutely normal for you to believe and for there to be an existence of many gods. This is, this is like banks, you know, there are lots of banks. They exist. They're real. And, Yes, the Bible in Exodus assumes that other gods are real and are active. And they're powerful. And they have some power, just apparently not as much power as Yahweh. Well, not even close. <laughs> no, and that's that's decisively told in the story of Exodus, that there's this battle that takes place over many sort of scenes. And in every scene, the God of Israel, Yahweh easily defeats the gods of of Egypt. So why is this important for us? What's Well, it um I just wanted to touch on one thing connected to the 10 commandments around this is the second commandment also relates to the position of the god of the Israelites in relation to others and it's the um sorry, I'm having a little trouble here. The second commandment says that bowing down before any idols um, is also forbidden. Um, and it says the reason for this is that Yahweh is a jealous God. Mm-hmm. And um, Pete Enns kind of asked the question, like, uh, you know, the God Yahweh, the God of Israelites, is a jealous God? Like, like, like what, is, what is this whole jealousy thing about? And he kind of gets into the whole idea of uh, is this isn't the petty, pouting, brooding resentment um, of a high school dating scene. He says, God's jealousy is more like what a spouse might feel if the other breaks the marriage vow, which is why worshiping other gods is sometimes depicted in the Old Testament as adultery. And then just to, like, just because I... I would love to get out some of Pete Enns' um, humor and sarcasm here. I'm just going to keep re- reading. The main point, however, is that for Yahweh to be jealous about sharing his people with other gods, all concerned parties need to be operating on the same assumption, namely that Yahweh actually has something to be jealous about. If my wife were to take a week-long vacation knitting scarves on an island for grandmotherly women, spousal jealousy wouldn't enter my mind. I'd probably welcome the challenge to see how long I could live on Intamin's, Wendy's, and Maker's Mark. And if you aren't sure what those are brands for, you can look that up. What is Intamin's? Do you know? I'm assuming that's a wine brand, I'm thinking. And okay. uh, Maker's Mark, of course, is, uh, is a Kentucky bourbon. Yeah. Uh, Wendy's, I'm assuming, is of the burger ilk. <laughs> Burgers and bourbon. This is what this guy likes to live off of when his wife goes <laughs> vacationing, knitting scarves for grandmother. So, but just to continue, but if she announced that she was taking off for a month to live in a shirtless under 30 male colony, I'd have a different reaction. <laughs> so, paints a vivid picture there. But um, 
it's it's interesting that that there is this assumption that um, there's a sense that the God of the Israelites has a personality and a a human like sort of reaction that when God's people go off and worship other gods, assuming that those are actually realities, that that God has a problem with that, that God experiences an emotion, like jealousy is an emotion. And this is how the people who wrote the Bible um, in Exodus, like this is how they perceive God to be a reality. It gives a picture of um, intimacy in a relationship. So it's, is that part of, is that part of um, the wisdom of this story or like when, when Pete asked the question, has asked the question, what is God like? Is, is that part of it? Just understanding the depth of, um, of God's connection to us? I mean, yes, yeah, certainly this is bringing a, an intimacy to it. Um, like, he, he kind of refers, a, I believe he refers a bit to the, um, he gets into this later when he's talking about the violence of God um, mm-hmm. in this chapter. But he talks about how, like, the Genesis 1 creation narrative is a narrative of God creating the world and all of humanity in a very nonviolent way. Like, it's a very creative, engaged process. And this is a very different narrative than some of the other peoples that were around the Israelites, how they understood how things came to be. And often it was seen as their, you know, the, the, the capricious gods were sort of, you know, they were having their, their cosmic battles. They're and... having a divine conflicts and they were, they ended up creating the world and humanity out of basically what was left over from battles where there was defeat. And so the gods that got defeated were the ones that became sort of the, the resources or the materials that the world was made from. And so, so there you have a a narrative of the world and humanity coming out of violence. And, and this is not, not at all the, the way the, the Yahweh creation story is told, but, um, but yeah, so there, there, I think part of this understanding of jealousy is that it's seeing things from, kind of a very heart emotional kind of category. And this is how they see God. This is a love relationship. This isn't some casual, um, distant relationship. Right. Right. It's yeah, exactly. And, um, I think, yeah, I think that's part of a way that we could read. We could read those stories and get a sense of, you know, how the people, who are having an experience of God, were perceiving who God was. Was I'm going to read a, I'm just going to quote a quote here that I think, um, I don't know where, I have it, I wrote it down here, so I'll just, I'll just read it. It's on page 188, and um, this connects, I think, to the wisdom question and what we're supposed to do with, um, yeah, what, we're, what are we supposed to do with this older, perspective of the people of God and how they 
the how they saw God. So, um, so he's talking about how, what does it mean to respect sacred text, and he says we respect these sacred texts best not by taking them as the final word on what God is like. So that would mean for us to read this and say, well, God is jealous. This is what God is like. God is jealous. And um, God's always been jealous. God continues to be jealous. And so we can take kind of like there's a principle there in the in the text that we can take. And to respect the word of God, we need to take that perspective. So... Um, we don't take it as a final word of what God is like, but by accepting them as recording for us genuine experiences of God for the Israelites and trying to understand why they would describe God as they do. So it becomes a bit more of like, well, that's interesting. They're, ver- they're humanizing the personality of God in a significant way. And how does that relate to how others, other gods were perceived at the time? And, and, we, and we get that perception from these stories and uh and then we we respect the text by by engaging with that and trying to understand that and recognizing that later on in scriptures there's some development about how god is perceived and there's some shifting of how god is perceived so are, were you finished the quote yeah i think so okay. or, or, or is there so, more that you well to just pick a up question from? alongside of that i feel like pete you know was kind of trying to take us away from from always trying to figure out what's the like this is the correct way to look at it this is the wrong way to look at it so right. we're more right and wrong and instead follow the lead of the writers um, not just by reproducing how they imagined God for their time but also then reimagining God for us and our time so there's two parts to that is seeing how they imagined God for their time and also reimagining God for our time. And I'm just remembering again from past podcasts that it's not like when we say reimagine, it's not, it's not just like coming up with an imagination, like we're just kind of a thought experiment, but, but reimagination in terms of how is God continuing to reveal God's self um, to her people? Right. So. What, what do you like? How, how, like, I'm just getting real practical here. So I, I keep asking the question. So what, so what, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean around how we do that in in, in our community or mm-hmm. I, yeah, what? Yeah, I mean, it might, might be interesting for us to imagine and reimagine the significance of an idea like jealousy. Um that can feel a bit like a negative sort of attribute that somebody has. Like, Oh yeah. Uh, we, I totally associate that as a negative thing. Yeah. Like, so to be a jealous person means to be a very possessive, obsessive, controlling type of person. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
So that might be one way. I mean, we, I think we tend to, in our own time, view the idea of jealousy in that way. But there's like that's a very negative, pejorative sort of understanding of jealousy. Uh, um, another way of thinking about jealousy, if you wanted to look on the on sort of the positive side of it, is that jealousy is a recognition of intimate connection between two people. That the relationship is so important that when one strays from the relationship, and it it may be like you know might be as dramatic as an adultery, right? Like that's kind of what's being um, sort of assumed here, but even just the sense of, you know, somebody being disconnected from the relationship or losing, um, losing focus on the relationship, being more kind of connected to something else, maybe work or a hobby or whatever. These are things that make the person who's in the relationship sad and, and hurt. And, uh, and it, it definitely is, you know, there, that's an attribute that one could, could wrestle with and think about how God has a relationship to God's creation and to the the object of that creation, humans, that is very relational and very... How does that impact you, like, personally? Is it meant to impact you personally? Like, what does that feel like? To well, feel I, like God is... I can't get this song out of my head. He is jealous for me. Yeah. Love's like a hurricane. Yeah. Well, I think it just, I think it is, it is impactful to us if we think about our faith as being not something that's like um, no, you. impersonal. No, 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 you. I'm not you. saying us. I'm saying God you. relates to me personally. God cares about my interest in the relationship. God wants my connection. How does that feel? Well, it feels personal. It feels. It feels more like, well, if nothing else, it, it, it feels like the way, the way I relate in other relationships in my life. I have a personal relationship with you that's significant and um, is, yeah, I mean, we, we can hurt each other. We can feel disconnected from each other. And, and there's something there that's very, it's about being intimate and personal. Um, relationships with our children, relationships with our friends. These are all things that we we operate on, not on sort of like an impersonal way. We operate in those relationships in very, well, they're very human ways. Mm-hmm. And God is being understood in ways that connect to the way we understand relationships, relations as human. Like, well, I mean, one, one thing you could say is that, well, it's like anthropomorphizing or it's an anthropomorphic understanding of God is we put our own human perspectives and motivations and the way we understand humanity on God. Yep. Um, and yet also the biblical kind of approach is that, well, we are actually made in the image of God. And so, it's God um, have putting that imprint on us. You know, it, it doesn't just go one way. It, it flows the other way, too. Yeah. Can I shift? Shift away. Okay, away from jealousy for a minute. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the bloody violence that uh, God uh, apparently commits and commands and or at the very least, watches. Um, 
Pete gives all kinds of examples about, you know, Genesis 6, God drowns all of life. We all know that story on earth, except this core few of Noah's family. Um, God threatens to consume with fire the Israelites after they build a golden calf. Um, just going to give you a few examples here. Mm -hmm. God commands the Israelites to enslave or kill residents of towns along the way to the promised land, um, while exterminating the Canaanites at God's command, Joshua, among other acts, tracks down five Kings and kills them and hangs them on trees. Um, there's just example after example of, um, God inciting violence, God supporting violence, God allowing, allowing violence. violence. Yeah. And so it's obviously very common um, that we struggle with that, about understanding what God is like in light of these stories and these assertions. Mm-hmm. Um, do we believe this about God? And... Or do we not believe this about God? This is kind of like, it feels like there's there's a right answer. Is this what God is like or is it not what God is like? It's yes or no. So help us a little bit in, in that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know if this is helpful or not, but I, I, I think, I mean, to me, I think this is helpful, is that we must not separate the people of Israel imagining who God is in the language that they are familiar with. Like literally the language they know how to speak. Mm-hmm. They're using like, cause that's so the old Testament's written in the language they spoke. It's not the language that we speak. That's right. So they were using that language and not only that, they were using an understanding of the world that they had in describing who God was in that language. And so um, I think Enz's perspective is, is that we see the intermingling of the people's experience with God and their understanding of the way things work. And um, that, like he says, the idea of divine violence is not an idea that is like introduced in the Bible divine violence was an understanding of other peoples and, and their understanding of their gods. Like this was sort of in, so in a sense, the Israelites are fitting in with the prevailing views about how the divine fits in with humanity. And often that involves around violence. Like he says, they're making sense of God with the ancient vocabulary that's available to them in their world. This is on page 149. Um, And like most things in the Bible, God is presented in diverse ways along with the changing experiences of the ancient Israelites and then the first followers of Jesus. So, um, kind of we're encouraged to, I guess we need to kind of understand that this, these are a people that are making sense of who God is, um, And does that, I don't know, I feel like um, 
like a criticism that somebody might have then is like, okay, so is the Bible just that it does that take away from the inspired nature of the Bible? Yeah. I mean, it's a good, it's a good question. I think, um, what I think it does mean, I don't think it means that, but I think it does mean that there needs to be a sifting and sorting and discerning of what is human and what is divine in this description of their experience of God. So um, this is quoting, quoting ends. As I mentioned earlier, whatever it means to speak of the Bible as inspired by God clearly doesn't mean the Bible is scrubbed clean of the human experience of the writers. Right. And taking seriously the historically shaped biblical portrayal of a violent God drives us to ask for ourselves, is this what God is like? And so from our perspective, you know, three, 4,000 years removed from the writers of, of these stories, uh, we both have to try to understand, well, what was the perspective of the writers of that time and how they understood God? And now we are have to have the, ask the question, well, what is God like? Is that what God is like? Or um, what's going on here? And we, and we are faced with doing some sifting. I imagine you could say from the from an Israelite's perspective, they weren't doing that sifting. They were simply experiencing God in their context with their language and their understanding, and they were fitting those things together. And um, we're having to look at that and kind of do some discernment. But we also have to understand that when we are thinking about our experience of God in our time, we are just as influenced by our language and our way of understanding the world. And quite, I mean, it's quite easy to imagine a couple of hundred years from now, people looking at what people of faith were doing and thinking and believing and thinking like, well, is that what God is like? Or is that what 21st century North Americans thought about who God was in the context of the world that they were living in? It seems kind of impossible to get it right. <laughs> And and maybe that's exactly yeah. I mean that. I mean that's that's exactly correct. I think that it's not about getting God correct. It's about engaging with the relationship. And you know where we may see things that others haven't seen in the past, we will also be blind. Like we'll be blind to things that that we can't see. You know, we. I think this is. I mean, this is something that. I mean, we see it happening in our own understandings of our lives. Like the way we thought of things 20 years ago, it's quite easy for us to say like, you know, I did that or I said that and I had no understanding of how problematic that was. Uh, you think about um, racism and anti-racism right now. I mean, it's easy to think of things that we did and said that we had no recollection, sorry, no connection to how those things we said or did were racist. But today when we look back on them and go like, that was, that was racist, you know, um, we didn't mean to be racist, but we nonetheless were racist in, in those moments. For me, it, um, it makes me feel the weight of, the weight of it when you say it like that. It makes me feel um, the importance of humility 
in my in our lives and as we engage with scripture it's and and yet there's not i mean if we look at the whole text of the bible there are things that we can say well this is like there's patterns we can look for there's things we can know and there's many things that we will never we will never know but i i think part of the I don't know, um, maybe part of the hope in it isn't like, oh yeah, like 2000 years from now, if people would look at what we say about who God is or how the world works, they'll think that's just as crazy as how we look back on the, you know, the early centuries and say, that's just, well, that's just crazy. We don't live like that. We don't think like that anymore. Um, so they were wrong and we're more evolved. <laughs> we're more right, but no, we're not getting it right either. Yeah. But if we take it out of the realm of kind of right and wrong and, uh, imagine that we are being given the, just as the early Christians were being given, um, insight into the goodness of God, the love of God, the character of God, even within, you know, an ancient culture of many gods and, and extreme violence, you know, in yeah. some ways we find ourselves in this time in extreme violence and the gods are different. We don't maybe pray to the fertility gods or the water gods, but we have the, capitalist gods and the <laughs> yeah um the money we have the money gods and the the body gods and the mm-hmm. whatever success gods the sex gods yep. could probably go on and on yeah definitely and i i mean i think that part of the part of the humility that we would be challenged to wrestle with is um i think when we look back at 4,000 year old scriptural perspectives on who God is, it's quite easy for us to think, well, we're so much more evolved than the people who had that perspective. And so we always will come to it as being like, it's out to lunch. It's, it's not accurate. It's not, it's not helpful. It's whatever. And so we continue to look at it as from our perspective as well, we're in a better place than they were in. And um, I think that's one of the places where we need to have some humility is because um, we can be just as blind in our time as they we think they were then. And we might actually be able to learn something from them um, that if we are just feel like, well, we just, you know, we just are so much more evolved, so much more enlightened. We have nothing to learn from them. And and this is where I find it kind of fascinating in the like especially in the Old Testament around violence is you see these um, I don't know if they're glimpses or hints or I mean I think in some ways they're quite forceful at times is how violence is limited or how violence gets modified in significant ways because of their understanding of how God was interacting in their in their thinking and so. Um, the one that comes to mind that I think is so interesting is that um, often there are stories where 
the people of Israel are in conflict with another people and they're about to go into battle and God encourages them to not go into battle with too many too many warriors or too many, you know, like there's a sense of like, well, you don't need that much to do this because really if you're going to find success, it's going to be because I'm with you. And so sometimes there's these stories of God sort of creating these these terrible odds for the people of Israel and then they end up still winning the battles. And in other cases where in Israel does it their own way and saying, well, that's silly. We're just going to take as much force as we have and use it and they end up losing. And so there's these these interesting um, yeah, these interesting learnings around, well, you know, if God is with you, uh, you don't need you don't need the things that you think you need to be successful. You could actually um, be successful just by trusting in God. And so, um, you know, we might, we, you know, you bring that kind of perspective to our life and we might think, well, there's certain things that we just need to uh, to live life in a successful way. And we realize that, well, actually, maybe the one of the most important things is just having a solid relational connection to God and the things that matter will will come out of that. Yeah. I'm reminded of this other book that I'm reading um, for school right now. Um, and What's it called? Uh, Surprised by Jesus again. Um, and Jason Bias. Biasi? Biasi or something. Um, he, he talks about how you know, when we're engaging with the Old Testament, which I think people tend to struggle with a great deal, that just another reminder that we're, we need to, to read through Christologically. Um, so that is what does that with mean? the lens of Christ. So we're, we're looking for every, we do too much separating, you know, and people want to check out the Old Testament and just read the New Testament. And and he's super strong that the Old Testament is is absolutely vital for showing us who God is and look like looking for um, Jesus in in the Old Testament. It comes through the is the story of the Israelites. Very important to the story can't lop off that story Hmm. um but we need to engage it and reimagine it for as a whole and i i like the way he talks about some some of that um makes me more um hopeful to to keep sticking with even some of the the more frustrating parts of that story. Do you think do you think that book is uh, a fairly readable book for for most people or is like I mean you're 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 in your master's studies is it a pretty academic oh, book or is it a pretty accessible book do you think? I think it's pretty accessible. Okay. Well, we should yeah. put well maybe we'll put the link to that book uh in uh in the show notes yeah. so that if somebody is interested in getting getting after that do you have a final kind of word for for the chapter for today's episode? Well, I I think 
Um, the last word I have on my notes is simply Jesus. And mm. so he hints that we're about to move into um, the significance of Jesus and how we read scripture and how the Bible actually works. So I'm actually looking forward to maybe making a bit of a transition there. Sounds good. Which connects to what you were just talking about. Hmm. Good way to end. Yeah, well, I'll never forget uh, King Misha and uh, the child sacrifice. That's uh... <laughs> Everybody needs a good child sacrifice story. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think there were probably days where we were ready to put ours for sale. Yeah. In the earlier days. Yeah, selling them. At least we might get some value for it. <laughs> uh, hopefully they're not listening. Well, I thought actually just just uh, before we leave that thing about the child sacrifice thing, the way the way ends writes the chapter and talks about a father thinking about sacrificing a child. I mean, I, I did find kind of a bit of a double entendre there in thinking about, well, this is kind of the, this is the, the Christian story that God allows God's son to come into the world to end up being sacrificed for the salvation of the people. And so um, on one hand, we might say this is a crazy story. Who would do this? And yet a central part of our faith is this very movement. Yeah. Something to think about. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for sharing. And we'll see you keep hopefully you're still hanging in there with us in our next chapter chapter eight is interlude jesus and all that sounds so, good thanks for joining us take care everyone thank you <laughs>